Hey, welcome. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Today is Easter or Resurrection Sunday. It is a day where Christians around the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the question that many of you may be asking, and hopefully you are asking, is why is this such a big deal? Why do we go through all of this effort, through all of this celebration every single year to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Well, there's a simple answer, um, and it's found right here in the Bible. You see, this whole book is comprised of hundreds of little stories about God's people, both imperfect but striving, those who fell away, those who persevered. It's full of stories of how God worked through broken men and women to achieve his purposes. But all of those individual stories, there is a common thread. There is a single thread of truth that connects all of these separate stories into one big story. And that one big story is how God came in the form of a man named Jesus to rescue a people from themselves and from their sin and to restore them into right relationship with Jesus. And so what I want to do today is tell you that story, beginning from the very beginning of this book to the very end, so that we can see why the resurrection of Jesus is worth celebrating today. So Genesis chapter 1, we see these powerful words. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a powerful statement in and of itself. So it says, In the beginning, before there was anything, God was. And then it says that He created. And so right from the first words of this book, God establishes his supremacy and his dominance and his glory in the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say in verses 24 and 25 that God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. You see, man had not yet entered the phrase, but right now we see God creating all that there is, all the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything that crawls along the ground. And God said it was good. And it was not just good as we understand it, but it was perfect. Yet God was not done. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You see, God has spent five days creating all things that exist, and yet on the sixth day, he created man. And he did something a little different with man. He didn't just create them. He endowed them with a little bit of himself, this divine spark, this image, this imago Dei that he put inside of man and gave man the dominion over this world and also the command to flourish and subdue it. And verse 27 says, God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God and he created them both male and female. And so in the beginning, we see this perfect picture of man and woman created in God's image to rule and enjoy the earth and most importantly, to enjoy God. You see, the Bible in Genesis chapter three says that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They had a perfect relationship with him. As a matter of fact, in this time, there was a perfect relationship among all things. Not only did man and woman enjoy a perfect relationship with God, they had a perfect relationship with one another. They had a perfect relationship with creation itself. So how did we go 
from perfection in the garden to a pandemic in the United States and around the world? How did we go from a perfect relationship between man and God to an imperfect relationship where men who breathe God's air and are sustained by God's life still don't even believe that God exists? How did we go from perfect relationship with one another to wars and conflict and passive aggressive holiday dinners? How do we go from perfect relationship to this world to viruses ravaging the human race? How did we go from the garden to where we are today? And we see that in Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven, it says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, we must not eat. Matter of fact, you must not touch it or you will die. No, the serpent said, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and so they sold fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, the this, this serpent, which was the agent of Satan in that time, did to Adam and Eve what he still does to us today. He convinced us, and as he convinced them, that following God was not as good as being God. Trusting that God's word is good and his laws are perfect and that we can enjoy his creation forever by submitting to his perfect plan is actually not as good as trying to take the place of God himself. To eat from this tree and to now become like God. And so in this single act of rebellion, this single act of defiance, when everything was perfect and relationship was perfect, man sinned. And all of us since Adam and Eve have been inheriting the effects and the consequences of that single act of rebellion. We can look at children and sell them. We don't have to teach them how to lie. We don't have to teach children to do the wrong thing. It comes naturally for us. It seems that conflict and broken relationships are our default nature now. And that all started from this single act of rebellion in the garden. But even in that moment, God made a promise of hope. Even at mankind's lowest point, when we had turned away from the God who made everything and it was good, even in that moment, God gave us a promise of hope. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get a promise from God. And it says, I will put hostility between you and the woman talking about the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. We begin to see that the foreshadowing of one day there's going to be a conflict. One day there's going to be a war and the head of the serpent, the, the head that represents sin and death and destruction will be destroyed. And that becomes the beginning of the grand story of the Bible. That over and over and over, mankind is going to rebel against God. Mankind is going to fall short of God's commands, which are good and perfect. And every single time, God is going to come through with a promise of hope. Fast forward a few thousand years, and we see that there is a man named Noah. He lived uh, after Adam and Eve, and the world became increasingly wicked in Noah's time. Matter of fact, he could begin to hear the cries of people from the righteous folks being tortured and subdued under wickedness. 
And God told Noah that he, the time for judgment has come. The time for God to answer the cries of the righteous has come. And so he told Noah to build a boat. And for 40 days, water sprang up from the ground and water came down from the sky. And God flooded the earth, wiping out all the wickedness and injustice. But once that flood was over, God made another promise. After mankind had been judged and found unworthy, even in that moment, God made a promise of hope to Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 11, it says, I, God speaking, will establish my covenant with you, Noah, that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Even in that moment, God making a promise of protection and preservation, that never again will he destroy the world through water. Fast forward to several hundred more years and you get to a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham was a man of great faith, although he didn't come from a family of great faith. For no reason, for nothing that Abraham did, God chose Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation. So he told Abraham, go to a place I will show you. And Abraham trusted God every step of the way. Matter of fact, Abraham trusted God so much that when God tested him to give up his only son, Abraham was willing to do even that. And because of his trust in God, God made another promise to Abraham. Although Abraham was not a perfect man, he was imperfect like all of us. Even though Abraham wasn't deserving, God made another promise of hope to Abraham. And it says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, it says, I will indeed bless you, Abraham, and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And listen closely. And it says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Just like the serpent and the heel in Genesis chapter three, God makes another promise that seems to be foreshadowing something bigger than Abraham is thinking, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Fast forward several hundred more years and we get to another man named Moses. Moses was a deliverer of his people, a redeemer of his people, led the nation of Israel out of captivity from wealth to wandering in the desert for 40 years because of their rebellion. The people, although they had seen the Red Sea part, although they had seen the miracles of God, they began to grumble and complain and turn their back on the God who had delivered them. And even in that moment, even in that moment where these people like us, they deserved judgment for rebelling against a God who had done nothing but good to them. Even though they rebelled, God made a promise to Moses in the midst of their rebellion in Exodus 19, we see that God saying that now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, God says in verse six of chapter 19, it says, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Now, these weren't people who were perfect. These are people who were rebelling against God, grumbling and complaining against the miracles and power of God. And yet God made another promise of hope that says you will be my special possession. You will be my people and I will love you, not because you deserve to be loved, but because I am loving. And so we see another promise of hope to the man Moses. Fast forward yet again, we see another man by the name of David. Now, David was once a shepherd who became a king, and although he made many mistakes and his life is full of, of, of disaster and mistakes along the way, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And being a man after God's own heart means that he had a heart that was soft towards the things of God. And God, even though he messed up time and time again, David, even though David messed up time and time again, God made a promise to him again, another 
promise of hope. Listen to this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. It says, ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you, your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yet another promise of hope that God is going to do something in the future, that God is going to raise up a descendant of Abraham, raise up a descendant of David who will have a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. But all these men were born and lived and died without ever seeing these promises of hope come true. Fast forward just a few more hundred years. And this man named Zechariah gives a prophecy. In Luke chapter 1, verses 76, it says, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because God, our merciful, compassionate God, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Of course, this prophecy was talking about the man, Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was walking down the street after his birth, John the Baptist called out and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see all the promises given to Adam and then to Noah and Moses and Abraham and David, all of those promises found their fulfillment in the man Jesus. He was the anointed one of God who did signs and wonders and taught with authority. But then something terrible happened. One day, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers, and the leading priests and the religious leaders at the time conspired to have Jesus murdered. And then they captured him. They arrested him in the middle of the night. They dragged him in front of a kangaroo court and with trumped-up charges and accused him of things that were punishable by death. They convinced the ruling authorities that Jesus needed to die. And after he was mocked and whipped, and beaten, soldiers nailed him to a cross for him to die as a public spectacle of humiliation. Matthew chapter 27, 45 describes the anguish of this moment. It says, from noon till the three in the afternoon, darkness covered the whole land. And at about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in that moment, Although Jesus had amassed hundreds of followers and had trained 12 disciples, in that moment all had deserted him. And he felt the sting of desertion, the, the pain of being left alone, the pain of dying for those and yet being ridiculed and isolated. And in that moment, can you imagine what the followers of Jesus were thinking? What his disciples were thinking? You see, some of them had left their livelihoods, their families, their homes, all that they had known to follow Jesus for years, thinking that he was the Messiah. He was the one that was promised to come to fulfill all the hopes of those who had come before. And here this Jesus, this anointed man, this Messiah, was slowly dying, suffocating on a cross, dying by Roman execution. Were the promises of hope that God made not to be trusted? Was God not able to fulfill the promises that he made to those who had gone before? In the midst of this anguish, Jesus was the very embodiment of hope, and hope seemed to be dying. And then three days later, 
two women went to go visit the tomb where Jesus would be then buried. And as they walked up, all of a sudden there was a flash of lightning and an earthquake and the rock that was covering the entrance to the tomb rolled away and an angel pronounced words that spoke life back into a dead and hopeless situation. The angel told these women who visited Jesus, don't be afraid because I know who you are looking for, Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. He is not here for he is risen. We started this conversation with the question of why is this Easter Sunday? Why is Resurrection Sunday such a big deal? Why do Christians every single year celebrate this empty tomb? You see, beloved, this empty tomb represents that promises of God can be trusted. It represents that God is mighty to save. It means that God's plans can't be thwarted by the evils of wicked men. It can't be thwarted by the intentions of those who would oppose them. The empty tomb means that God can be trusted and our Savior is alive. The Bible speaking about Jesus says that in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that they would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the empty tomb means that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that we don't just have a hope in this life, but we have an eternal hope. And that's what the resurrection means. It means that we have this eternal hope. And what's the difference between our eternal hope and other types of hope? You see, there's lots of things that we can hope in this life. We can hope for better circumstances and situations. We can hope for protection for our family and loved ones. We can hope for the ending of this pandemic season even now. We can hope for a treatment and a cure for COVID-19. We can hope for life to return to some sense of normalcy. But you see, all those hopes are not eternal because although there may be one day a cure for COVID-19, there's not a cure for death yet. Although the circumstances may improve over time, we have been reminded that there is an uncertainty in this life that we cannot hedge against, that we cannot protect ourselves against. We can do everything right and still feel the sting of uncertainty, change and despair. You see, although there are many things that we hope for in this life, there is only one eternal hope and it's not a change of circumstances. It's a person, the man Jesus. And the empty tomb represents the indestructible and eternal hope that's been given to all those who put their trust in Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, the last book in the last chapter of the Bible. Here, Jesus, the risen living Savior, speaks. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. You see, the promises that we find in Genesis chapter 1 and through the rest of the Bible find their fulfillment in Jesus. So from Genesis to Revelation, all of those promises or hope are found in the man, Jesus. And so if you are looking for a hope, it may not come in a change of circumstances. It may not come with certainty that can be guaranteed. It may not come with comfort that will never be disturbed. It will only come in the man, Jesus Christ. And the empty tomb means that he can be trusted to deliver what no man can take away, what this world can't take away. 
And so for the believer, that is why we celebrate every single year and hopefully every single day that we have a risen Savior, that the promises of hope that God made from Adam all the way to the end of time and to the end of the ages, all of those promises are fulfilled and are sure in the man Jesus Christ. So the only proper response is worship. The only proper response is obedience and to follow him who can give us what we are desperately searching for, what this world can never give us, an indestructible and eternal hope. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, we were always faced with a choice. We are faced with a choice to submit to God and believe in his goodness or try to become God and reject him and face the consequences. So Easter is not just a celebration. It is also a moment of truth. It's a moment of decision for the believer. Will we decide today like we should decide yesterday and again tomorrow to follow Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, knowing that he is trustworthy? And for those who don't yet have a relationship with the Father, those who don't yet know Jesus intimately and personally, you are also faced with the decision. Are you going to repeat the mistakes of your ancestors, Adam and Eve? Are you going to try to dethrone God in your life and say, I can do a better job? Or are you going to submit to him? That is the choice put before us. And that choice has both consequences and rewards.